We are in a two-week little mini-series on why church membership. And without going back and reviewing last week a whole bunch, you may feel a little lost. If you didn't hear last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen, especially if you consider this your church home or are considering considering this your church home. These are, these are two really important messages just for the life of our church and kind of where we are at and where we are going. And this week, we're going to look at things. Let me just say, probably the most important thing I said last week is this, that as we are looking at this topic, far and away, and and infinitely more important, is that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is uh, the record of being in God's family, than your name being on a church membership register somewhere. So that church membership... Uh, is subservient to that big idea of being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which means your name will never be taken away, which means you're in God's eternal kingdom. That's the membership that is infinitely more important. However, we're going to look at scriptures today that continue the discussion about why join a local church. And we looked last week just a little bit briefly. We started with what a church even is, what the gospel is, and some of our resistance and uh, some of the things that, that we have going on with this. One of the things that uh, I think is maybe popular in every generation, I'm not positive about that, but I know it's popular in my generation and even is popular right now, and that is this. I often hear these kinds of sentiments as I, uh, as I talk with people, engage with people, and overhear people. One sentiment is this, that the, the church is corrupt, and it's just about money and a pastor's ego. That always catches my ear a little bit if I'm, you know, eating a Taco Bell and I hear that. Another one is this. I love Jesus. It's the church I have a problem with. Uh, some feel that when you organize the church, it loses its power. And on and on it goes. There are things said about the church. And when I hear them, I'm curious to, about that topic. That's a vastly important subject to me, and I'm, I'm keenly interested in that. The reality is I've had some of those same sentiments. And having grown up in the church every other week, some of you know my story a little bit with that, I have struggled with the church at times. And one of the things that God did in my own life, just in uh, in college, is to be feeling these ways, saying some of these things, having uh, many in my generation, I think it's uh, catching, I think it's other generations as well, but having an issue with commitment and having an issue with authority. And church membership flies in the face of both of those. And one of the things that I did as I was, as, as I was processing through this, I really look back and I'm thankful to older and wiser brothers and sisters who came alongside me with my questions, who came alongside me with my rantings at times, and patiently loved me through them. Many of them didn't correct me gently, but many of them did correct me gently and loved me through it and patiently endured with my questions and patiently endured with, why do we do it this way? And That's not what I see in the scriptures. And what God had put in my heart was a longing for the glory of the church. And I think some of these older, wiser uh, brothers and sisters saw that and saw that I was motivated not just to tear down the church, but really to build her up. And so it was so wonderful to see these older brothers and sisters do some very, very traditional things. Things like refer to the Bible when you have a question. Things like gather for worship on a regular basis. Things like taking all matters to prayer. Things like depending on the Holy Spirit. These are timeless, traditional things that I value immensely today. You know how I got this wisdom? By being in the church. You know how I was in a church? I became a member of a church. 
And, and therefore, I had this community, this cloud of witnesses, as it were, um, to, to be around me. Here's the question that, that I'm really wanting to pose to you today is this. Is membership of a church a matter of preference or of biblical obedience? That's what we're really kind of looking at this morning. And I want to take you to a passage here uh, in Hebrews chapter 13. So if, you're, uh, if you have your Bible, open up to there. Uh, last week, I'll just read it for you, but Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. And let us consider how to stir one another um, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. Built within that is the message of the church. We're not gathered together for our comfort, for our fulfillment, for our needs, for our party. Do you see the outward missional focus of this passage even? We're to meet together how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We're commanded constantly as a church to go and make disciples. We're commanded constantly as a church to share the gospel, our lives, our resources, our time. And built right in here is this. We're, we're to meet together, uh, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a sense of urgency to this. That people really are lost and dying and going to hell apart from the salvation message of the gospel. And so all the more we're to be together to be encouraging one another. I gave you this last week. It's in the notes. You can download all this online. Listen to it online. It's the definition of a local church. This is really from Acts chapter 2, but the wording of it comes from a book called Vintage Faith. I really liked how they worded it. It says this. The local church is a, lo- uh, a, a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to Scripture. They organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. Would you pray with me? Father, as we are going to be reading from your word to your people, to the world, God, that you would just humble our hearts, humble our spirits, give us attentive minds, attentive ears to hear. Would you allow us this morning, God, to come hungry to hear from you? I pray that you would take the preparation that I have put and submit to you now, Lord, and that you would just speak through it. And we praise you for this gathering time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, where I grew up in West San Jose, uh, on the playgrounds of Country Lane Elementary School and then Rogers Middle School, um, there was a keen fascination between guys and girls. And this is just how it was. And uh, there was all kinds of talk all the time, just here and there, about kind of who liked who and who was sitting next to who and who signed whose yearbook and, and on and on. And, uh, and I can remember that, that basically as this conversation went on uh, in, in different ways and in different places, that ultimately uh, this question would come up. If you were talking about who liked who and for how long and what, ultimately it would come down to this. Well, are you going around? Or did you ask her to go around? Or who's going around with who? Or are you not going around with her anymore? And so going around meant, okay, this meant that you were officially an item. You were a couple, okay? Uh, my mom probably told me one time what it was when she was growing up, but it wasn't going around. It was something different. Someone help me out. What was it before? 
Uh, going steady. Yes, there it was. I, I knew it was there. Back to my mind. This is the equivalent of going steady. Okay. Um, and so you, you, here's what was happening though. In this little weird junior highway, they were defining the relationship, right? Now, I want you to think for a minute just about your DTR talk that you may have had. There's someone sitting in this room that one time came to me and he said, it's time to define the relationship. <laughs> and he was talking about being a part of this body. And I actually really liked that. I thought that was really clever because that really is, um, what we're talking about with, with, with church membership. Some of you have had a DTR, you know, type talk and it went really, really bad. Uh, in junior high, it's one thing to define the relationship as going around. And if next week you're not going around, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, you may have cried some tears and wasted some paper writing your thoughts out, but really it's not that huge of a consequence with, with all of that. But there are many people who, whose lives they walk through and they go, man, um, you know, we never had this, this DTR. We never, we never had a DTR talk. And I thought I was building this relationship. I thought I was investing in a relationship that was concrete and it was really jello. Man, they up and walked after six years. There have been guys I've looked at and I've looked them in the face and said, dude, it's time to fish or cut bait right now. What are you doing? Define this relationship. Don't keep dating this person year after year after year. Where's this going? What's happening with that? So many times in youth ministry uh, and college people considering marriage, uh, not doing this leads to devastating consequences. The Bible instructs us to define the relationship. Let me give you two Old Testament examples of this. One is the outward sign of circumcision. Uh, that's a whole different sermon. Uh, but, but that was an outward fleshly mark that said you are a part of the covenant people of God. A second thing from the Old Testament would be just the, the feasts that were to be participated in. And at these feasts, different things were communicated. And it was said, this is the people of God that, 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 that do these things. They're identifying with, with the community of God. In the New Testament, we have baptism and we have communion. Those are just at least two. Baptism, which is the, the outward uh, kind of New Testament picture of circumcision in a way. It's an outward sign of an inward reality, something that's gone on. And it's identifying, it's pulling on the jersey saying, I am identifying not with God vaguely, not with God generally or spirituality generally, but with Jesus Christ who I'm being found in right now. And I'm representing that by going under the water and dying with him and rising again to, to, to newness of life. And I'm looking at, at Netta, who was just baptized maybe a, week, uh, a month or two ago. And it's just a joyous celebration to see that. And we pray and praise God for more uh, baptisms to go on. The second one is communion, where the people of God identify and remember and come around the Lord's table to honor and celebrate their master and king and to remember and proclaim him until the day that he comes back. Those are just two examples. An overarching word over both of those, or all of those, is the word covenant. It's a covenant people. It's a people that have entered into a binding promise. At the wedding last week that I did, I, I shared this thought, that the power of your marriage, the power of this wedding, is not really at all in the location or in all the people, or the decorations, or the little state signed certificate saying that you are, or a minister saying, by the power vested in me, by the state. It's really in these vows that you're making before God, and in front of these witnesses. And you are covenanting together. You're saying, till death do us part. And the reason there's power in that is that God instituted that, and God designed that, and God gives that to us. 
Jesus defined relationships. He says, follow me. And he defined quite clearly 12 disciples as he went around. And there was an inner three after that. Continually and clearly, Jesus told people who his family really were and who God accepts. Jesus, not to be crass, but to give you a biblical picture, Jesus did not hook up with his girlfriend. Jesus didn't have a friends with benefits relationship with his girlfriend. He committed to her. He went to the altar for her. He laid down his life for her, gave the ultimate sacrifice, and said, till death do us part, and forever committed to his bride. That's us, the church. Jesus defined the relationship and pursued us in that. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about a few things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have time this morning really for one key passage we're gonna kind of look at, and I'm gonna give you a lot of scripture, some of which will be on the screen, uh, some of which you'll just need to write down, but as always, I want your Bibles open. I want you to, uh, make sure that this is not being made up, but this is coming from the scriptures. Hebrews 13 tells us a few things about leaders. It says, remember your leaders, obey your leaders, and greet your leaders. Three different times it mentions specifically your leaders. Now, I want to focus on just one part of that, Hebrews 13, verse 17. And I'll read it for us right now. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul. As those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. A couple of questions emerge just out of this one passage, and question one is this. Which leaders is an individual Christian supposed to submit to? As you read this, who are your leaders? Who are the leaders that an individual Christian is supposed to submit to? And then secondly, as a pastor, which people will I give an account for? Both of those ideas are wrapped up in this one verse, and we want to explore them. Which leaders should an an individual Christian submit to? Uh, If it isn't clear, then one might be left with this. As long as you're called a pastor, as long as you're called an apostle, as long as you have a business card that somehow says you're an elder somewhere, I evidently need to, to listen to you and submit to you. Can I just tell you right now, please don't do that. There are some people that the second that I say I'm a pastor, they find out I'm a pastor or something, that they immediately take my word uh, somehow, because of their upbringing, as if it's just gospel truth. That's dangerous. That's incredibly dangerous. Now, on the flip side, there are plenty of people, most people, I would say, <laughs> especially my age and younger, that, uh, the, that the word pastor or title pastor doesn't bring reverence or awe or inspiration or anything like that. It's exactly the opposite. It's, wow, you have zero relevance for my life. And that's sin too. But for, for the sake of today's conversation, let me just say this. Some people, if you are following a Christian leader, simply because they're on the radio, simply because they have a big ministry, simply because they've published a book, guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. And this is exactly why the Bible is defining the relationship for who your leaders are. It is not meant that you as an individual Christian, an individual child of God, are to obey and submit to everyone who calls themselves a leader or Christian pastor. Membership identifies who the elders are in a church. Second question, who will I as a pastor give an account for? If it's everyone in San Jose, we have a problem. I have a massive problem. Because I can't possibly shepherd everyone in San Jose. Correct? Right. 
That's just a massive ordeal, and, and I would be doing a terrible job, and I would not get any sleep at night if that were true. How about if we narrow that down to say this? We've been a church for roughly five years. What if it was every single person who's ever sat in a burgundy chair at Neighborhood Bible Church? Anyone who's ever visited? I'll tell you, I remember names and faces of people who were here uh, at, by the third week, our third service as a public church, and I have not seen them again. I've since talked to them a couple times and pursued them. But what if it's everyone over the last five years? What about 15 years from now? Will I be accountable for everyone who has regularly come uh, or, or ever visited? How about if it's those who are here most of the time and there's some kind of ambiguity there that what most of the time even really means? Do you see the, the issue here? Who is it that church leaders, according to Scripture, are going to give an account for? Church membership identifies who the elders are accountable for. One of the interesting things that I, I hope you'll see as you study the Scriptures on this and look into the Scriptures on this is this. The New Testament seems to assume membership in a local church. And yet, it doesn't clearly spell out a membership process in the New Testament. So what I would say to that is this. There are some things that are laid out crystal clear. You know what there is in that? There's not freedom to that. There's biblical authenticity to that, or there's not. But in other things, uh, God has laid out the ideas of it there, and this, this covenant community there, but there's not a clearly spelled out pattern for how to do church membership. And so what I would say to that is this, there's freedom in that. There's freedom for us as Bible-believing, God-trusting people to come alongside and say, okay, so how is that to look? How is that to work? And how should that look in different social contexts and different cultural contexts and different contexts throughout the ages? And that's part of the challenge that we have in front of us. I want to give you three scriptural topics that point to defining uh, the relationship in a local church. And you can write these down if you'd like. The first one is this. Authority and submission. Throughout scriptures, you have kind of a, a head-subordinate relational structure. Sometimes it seems to be really strongly pointed out and lived out, and other times it seems to be downplayed, but it's clearly there. Uh, I, would, I would say this to you, that they aren't swear words. Authority and submission are not swear words. They're not, they're not negative terms. Um, Within this, within this text, we have, we have this concept right here, that we are to follow our leaders. That we are to follow our leaders. That's, that's a scriptural mandate. Uh, Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor, as it were. And he's the ultimate authority in the church. Now, I want, to hear, I want you to hear a both-and statement. And he has appointed leaders. So catch that. Jesus is the senior leader in every church that's biblically faithful. And he has appointed leadership. The terms we use often around this place is that we're the under-shepherds to the chief shepherd. So as an elder, as a pastor, we are to shepherd the flock. But we are ourselves uh, under the, the chief shepherd. The question I want to explore a little bit here is, how are we to follow our leaders? One is by being a blessing to them. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your, your leaders and submit to them. How are you a blessing to leaders? You obey them. You follow them. You submit to them. Does that mean that they're always right and they can never be challenged? Absolutely not. In fact, the scripture gives uh, indication and clear instruction on how that is to happen, indicating that that ought to be a, a part of the body life of the church. It says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. 
which would be of no advantage to you. Isn't it true that if your leaders are leading you with groaning and you're making them groan, it's really hurting yourselves? That's just how it goes. There are times, parents, when your kids are acting in such a way, behaving in such a way that you are groaning. Now, parents groan in different ways, right? Uh, but, but you're groaning to them. And it actually is kind of cyclical in nature. It comes back and it's like, this really isn't good for you either, kid. And sometimes the whole family could just be in a, a nightmare spiral of, of, of badness going on. And it's just not good. We're to, we're to be a blessing to them. That's one of the ways that we follow our leaders. The second one is by honoring them. Look at 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let me just say a brief word about this. This is the person who doesn't, uh, wasn't raised in the South or wasn't raised in the church where, oh, you're a pastor. Well, here, you get the gold star parking spot and you, uh, you, get, you get my undying devotion no matter what your theology is because you're a pastor and you have a suit on. Um, and, and, and the opposite of that, of that person who just is dishonoring to that. There are some people who are within a church family and they are, they are just sinfully in rebellion of any and all authority. And the person might be sacrificially, lovingly laying their lives down for that, for that sheep and they're just a backbiter. They're just a rebellious spirit. They're just a questioner. At every turn, they are going to find the opposite side and speak out and be divisive about that. That's not honoring. Now, let me just share this. There are, there are many other places in Scripture, but I want to put the burden on the leaders. Okay? So there's a way that we're told in Scripture on how to follow our leaders, but there's also much instruction on how leaders are to lead their followers. So I'm going to give you two on how to follow and, two, and three on how to lead. How are we to lead as leaders? One is, oops, by example. First uh, Peter 5, 1 to 4, look at it. Uh, uh, is it on your? Is it in your notes? Yeah. Yes. Uh, there it is. Um, so I exhort you. Uh, so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. There's a clear way God is instructing people on how to lead, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, there it is, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what I, the first and foremost, by the way, isn't this true of leadership? You model it. You're an example. And so that's one of the first ways that leaders are to lead their followers, is to do it by example, not by getting up here, barking a bunch of commands, laying a bunch of heavy burdens on you, and not doing a single thing to help walk through life with you, not do a single thing to help put sin to death in you, and pray with you, and walk through that with you, not do a single thing to model what it looks like to live a repentant, humble lifestyle as a fellow a traveler on our way to heaven but rather to be an example. I'm not even going to get into this, but built into here is willingly, eagerly, and not domineering. All kinds of instruction on how leaders should lead. Secondly is this. They are to lead carefully. Acts 20, 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whose church is it? It's Jesus's. He obtained it with his own blood. 
I didn't sacrifice for our church with my own blood. Jesus did. It's His church. Sometimes my uh, humor and my flippant attitude in certain areas gets me in trouble because people think I don't take the gospel seriously or they don't think I'm, I'm not passionate and serious about the church of God. I want you to know I am. And those who know me actually know that I have that side to me. And you'll see that come out most often. I'm passionately serious because we're to pay careful attention. And these are eternal matters that are at stake. And so whether it's in my study, whether it's in my prayer time, uh, in, in how we think through and pray through uh, as an elder board, how we invest our money and spend our time and use our resources, these are serious matters. We're to pay careful attention to ourselves. Preach the message to ourselves first and for all the flock. Built into this word is an interesting idea, and that is this, that pastors are also to care fully, that we ought to be your pastors, your elders, your leaders in any local church. And if you have to move away from here tomorrow, I pray that you will find a church that you would look to and say, does this church look like my home church that I just left? One of the ways God instructed me is when I went and looked at other churches, I was able to point back to my home church and say, man, this, this is Christless opinions about social matters. This isn't preaching God's word. You know how I knew that? I could spot a counterfeit because I've been raised hearing God's word. That was really, really beneficial. I hope that you sense from your shepherds here at this church a a, a care and a spirit of love, uh, even as we'll talk shortly, love enough to push you and love enough to confront you that you would go away from here and if you didn't receive that, it would seem odd to you. You'd say, man, I just don't feel loved. I don't, I don't know that I'm, that I'm cared for like I, like I should. That's the way that, that pastors ought to be doing. Uh, thirdly is this. Leaders are to lead followers under authority or as a follower. Hebrews 13, 17, as those who will give an account. I'll tell you who gets this in spades, hopefully. Teachers, parents, coaches, instructors, those of you who God has entrusted to your care some followers. And they're not yours. You're stewarding that role. And parents, I hope you parent in such a way that you say, I'm going to parent in such a way that I understand I'm under authority. And so although I've been given the gift of authority for the blessing of those that I'm leading, I'm going to do so as one who's under authority. This is built into our nation's words, isn't it? One nation under God. Does that mean we've lived that perfectly? No. But I like that that's built into the foundation of it. We ought to call our nation back to that, that we're under God as we lead uh, this nation. Membership allows elders to know and to care and to give an account for the flock that is entrusted to them. And membership allows uh, congregants, the flock, to know well who their leaders are. Let me give you a second spiritual topic that is found in the Bible and, uh, and points toward or indicates church membership. It's everyone's favorite topic. It's church discipline. Now, church discipline carries with it all kinds of mystique and a giant wake of nightmare unbiblical handling of it. 
One nightmare on biblical handling of it is this. We don't practice church discipline because who are we to judge? That's an unbiblical and unloving attitude. Uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 right now. I am not going to take the time this morning to read this, but I'm going to summarize, and in my summary, you can go back and read later uh, what it's talking about. Church discipline is a term given to uh, many places in scriptures. I'm highlighting one that talk about how the community, how God is going to use the community to... Discipline to lovingly discipline those who are not in accordance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is addressing something that's going on. There is an unrepentant sexual immorality that's going on. Rather than being humble and repentant and seeking the truth, the community is arrogant. And those who are in sin, unrepentantly walking forward in sin, are arrogant in this. Paul's instruction is that they are to be removed from among you. Now here's the question that I would have for us. How do you kick someone out? How do you remove them from among you if there's no way in? If you haven't defined who's in or out, how do you remove someone from among you? This is a hard text. It's in there and you say, God, what do you want us to do with this? How do you want us to express this as a church body? Without a local church covenanting together as a community of faith, church discipline is difficult. It's not impossible. It's difficult. Now, I was at a water polo game this weekend. And uh, I was sitting there not, not maybe 10 feet away from, one of the, uh, from the opposing coach. And because it was kind of a scrimmage-type game, there was coaching going on while it was happening. And he was both refing and coaching at the same time. And this, uh, this coach is, is sitting there, and he starts screaming at his goalie. And he's yelling at him, and he yells at him, and he says this. He goes, if you do that one more time, the goalie had already thrown the ball away, trying to go for kind of a Hail Mary pass to one of his buddies. I know Hail Mary's football, but work with me. Uh, and he chewed him out for that. And then the guy does it a second time, not more than, you know, 30 seconds later. Chucks the ball down, and he yells at him. He goes, if you do that again, you're going to JV. And I'm like, man. And he just... And, and he just called him out. And honestly, the way he was ranting and raving, A, made me glad that my son's coach is different. And B, me and the guy next to it, we were about ready to shove him in the water. We just thought that would have been fun, but we didn't. Um, but he was, he was just chewing this guy out. Now, the goalie is there. And uh, by the way, he never once threw, threw the ball long again. Uh, so I guess it worked. But the goalie uh, had a couple of options at that point. Uh, first of all... It, um, even even in water polo, I mean, I've got membership on on my mind, right? As I'm sitting here, and even in, in in a sports team, it's really clear who's on and who's off. There's a way to kick a guy off a team because there's a way on the team, and there's expectations if you're on that team, right? There's even requirements on who can be in high school sports. All of this is good, and all of this keeps the basic fundamental social order that we have, and doesn't lead to uh, the London riots, right? When it comes to high school sports, that's what would happen if we didn't have this kind of a thing. Um, but here's the, here's the player's option, okay? Think about this from the, from the varsity goalie's position for a moment. He could either submit. That's what he did, by the way. He changed his behavior. He submitted to coach, and he just, he just stopped doing it. The threat evidently worked. He also could move to another team. Now, with much effort, he could probably remove himself from this school, and he could try and get in somewhere else, right? Could be a huge challenge. He may not, and he may miss a whole season for doing that, but that's one of his options in front of him. He could stop playing. I quit. I'm walking away. 
Or he could just keep chucking the ball long, right? And get moved to JV. Now, there's maybe other options, but of those four options, do you see, do you see church people in this? Do you see how it is in a local body to, to have this happen? Um, here's the one challenge. Uh, church membership, which, by the way, it's a r- relatively new phenomenon that we've de-emphasized it. Some of the de-emphasis has actually been really, really good because it's gotten away from sinful pictures of church membership and meaningless membership, building up the roster. We have a membership of 500, although on a normal Sunday we have about 100 people. That's sinful and meaningless. I think that devalues it and is unbiblical and is totally turned around. It smacks of King David numbering his army and wanting it to be somehow about a large role. Nonsense. That's not what we're talking about. But because it's de-emphasized, here's what could happen right now, and this has happened. Someone says something from the pulpit up here. The vast majority of people say, wow, that hurt. Then they go look at the mirror and they see the scripture. They say, um, I need to change. That's actually accurate. That's been us. We need to repent. We need to change our mind about that. Some have said, no, no one talks to me that way. No one talks to me that way. Certainly not the Bible and not some punk preacher. So I'm going to leave this church. I'm going to go down the street where they don't offend me. Until what? Praise God, hopefully they get offended. And then they go somewhere else. And then they go somewhere else. You know what they're doing? Without maybe knowing it, they are, they are seeking. They are trying to build a God in their own image. If God never crosses you, it's a God in your own image. That's the way it is. You ought to read the scriptures often and see things you don't like. You ought to hear things from me and others in the pulpit periodically that you do not like and you get angry at me. And I know some of you do. You're good at it. You send me emails and and talk to me. And that's good. Some of that's very, very healthy. Um, I don't long for that, but I, I welcome it. Throughout the Bible, there's definition and instruction. There's definition and instruction about the church. There's definition and instruction about how to treat strangers. What do we do when there's strangers among us? The Bible talks about all that. Um, uh, even what to do when the gospel invades culture, which is what the mission of Jesus Christ is to do, is to go out, right, and invade culture. And then what happens when cultures clash? This happens all the time with us. But you have a Jewish culture and a Greek culture. And so, read your Bibles. Part of the New Testament is, is talking about, well, what about meat sacrificed here and there? And what about circumcision? Who should and who shouldn't? What parts of this are we to keep and what parts are we not to keep? The Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts was about this. Disagreements that creep up and come up. I hope our church is constantly engaged with those who, who have been kind of raised in the church and speak churchese and those who are coming in fresh and coming from all kinds of different lifestyles, being transformed by the gospel and saying, really, do I have to do that? One of the things from yesteryear was you had to slap on a tie and a jacket if you were a man, and you had to have a, a, something that buttoned up very tight if you were a, a, a lady. And that was, what, that was part of what the, the visible thing was. The conquistadors, remember that? This is the idea of coming into a culture and wanting them to, to grab onto things that are cultural and not mandated by Scripture. So we ought to be constantly having some of those kinds of challenges. Think about the biblical metaphors for a church. I'm going to throw out some biblical metaphors for the church. Think about what this would look like if it wasn't defined who's in or who's out. It just doesn't work. It falls apart. Listen to this. The family. You're clear on who's family and who's not, right? Now, my kids call someone in this room grandma so-and-so, and it's beautiful. I love it. 
But they actually know, I think, that they're not, they're, they're not really part of our family. But what's beautiful is that, is that with God's family, the, the church family, there's an extended, extended family to that, right? However, I'm crystal clear on who I'm caring for in my family. That's defined. Very crystal clear. How about the military? I mean, isn't it clear who's defined of who's in and who's out? Crystal, right? There is, there is no question there. How about the flock? I was just in Ethiopia two months ago, and all these shepherds were together across the street from where I'm staying. I have my Bible open and my coffee in hand, and I'm just watching this. They all come together. And to me, all the sheep look the same. They just look furry and noisy and smelly. And I'm just looking at them going, wow. And yet... They, they could leave with their flock. Crystal clear who was in and who was out. No, no qualms. Finally, how about the body? It's clear who a member is in the Bible with the church, with these, with these metaphors. Now, if you look down at verse 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul says this, Don't associate with such a person in order that you may save their soul. The idea being this, isn't church, loving un, uh, isn't church discipline unloving? No, it's not. We'll get to that in a second. But it's in order that they may save their soul. Then he says this, don't judge those outside the church, but those who are in the church. Again, there must have been a defining line between who is in and who is out. I'm just wanting to show you these texts. How about this thought? But I thought church is always supposed to be a loving place. Let me turn this to the home for a minute. Parents who don't discipline their children, are they guilty of too much love or not enough love? Not enough love. And maybe some of you are the product of that. Maybe some of you know a product of that. It's not pretty. It's unloving not to discipline. Uh, this, is, this is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. God calls the undisciplined... I can't do that. That's messing my wire. Uh, God calls the undisciplined, those who are not under discipline, illegitimate children. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. And finally this, all discipline in the moment is unpleasant, but in the end it produces a harvest of righteousness. That's Hebrews 12, 11. One of the ways God, uh, one of the ways God loves us is instructing the church to worship Him. And by worship Him, I mean give Him the most weight, the most glory in any and all situations through church Discipline. The question for any biblical church is this. Are we going to trust God enough to do this often difficult and sticky and challenging thing to lovingly discipline members in our church? And the answer for Neighborhood Bible Church is, yes, we are. If you came to me and asked, does your church practice church discipline? I would tell you, yes, we do. Now, without church membership, do you see how this gets rather challenging? Because it's not clearly defined who's in and who's out. Finally, uh, for this morning, the fact that there are different gifts and different offices in the church indicate, point to, the fact that there is a defined local body. Now, if you were here uh, maybe two years ago, we did church in HD, and we looked at different metaphors of the church. One of the metaphors of the church is that we're a flock, we're the flock of God, and there is a chief shepherd, it's Jesus Christ. We talk about a lot in here. This is the image we used. You know what that dog represents? That dog represents elders in the church. You know how? 
The chief shepherd, look at where that dog's looking. That dog is looking right to the chief shepherd. Who has the different perspective than anyone else on the playing field? It's the man in the picture. It's the shepherd. He's above it all. He's guiding and leading and protecting and steering and caring for and binding up wounds for the flock. You know, part of how he's providing for the flock, he has under shepherds. They're called elders in a local church. And they are there to steer the church, to sometimes nip the sheep in the leg, to get them to turn. The dog in that picture is the leaders in the church. We're, we're not above you in the sense that we're somehow a man and you're, we're a sheep in, in, that, in that sense. But rather, our eye is on the chief shepherd and we do as the chief shepherd tells us to do. And guess what? It's not secret knowledge. It's not like I can come to you and say, Brother, uh, this, is, this is it. What's beautiful about it is that God gives it to us for all to see. We live in a day and age where most everyone in this room can read. Not only can they read, they've got access to hundreds of Bibles in, in many languages at any given moment. And so we're able to see, is this biblically how we're to be doing this? Um, we see elder and pastor, by the way, as the exact same office in, in the, the New Testament church. Again, test me in this. Go and show me where I'm wrong in that. But, but what we see is that, is that, in essence, if I could put it this way, one is a role and one is a function. The role is an elder. That's the office. It's that of overseer. Sometimes your Bible will translate it. And what the elder does is he pastors, he shepherds the flock. All right, quick, uh, three quick things. One is that um, offices of the church. They're appointed in the church. Jesus appointed apostles. Paul, Acts 14.23 says this, And when they had appointed elders, plural by the way, we believe in a plurality of leadership. This church should not rise and fall on one individual. We see time and time again in scriptures, not he appointed one superstar Christian that they all looked up to, and he was their king. But rather, we appointed elders, plural, in the local church. And when they had pointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If you go read First and Second Peter, you'll read the same thing. He's appealing to other elders in the church as an elder himself, just indicating offices in the local church. Not only are they appointed in the church, but also they're qualified. Uh, Jesus qualifies leaders for the church. First Timothy 3, 1 to 2 should be familiar to you. First Timothy 3, 1 to 2 says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be. That's required. And then it goes on to list what the qualifications for leaders in the church ought to be. It's mimicked, it's said elsewhere in Titus chapter 1. You should go and read these. What's great about this is if you've been abused by some bad spiritual leadership and people who just said, I'm the leader, then you get to look at this and say, wow, isn't that just like God to provide us a clear picture of who's qualified for that? And ultimately, it's Jesus who raises up leaders, qualifies leaders, and ultimately brings leaders down. He does that with whole churches, too, when they stop being effective for the gospel. By the way, deacons are also listed, and we're not going to, to look at that. I don't know if you grew up playing sports with your friends like I did, but we spent many hours playing wiffle ball, football, soccer, all kinds of things. And on some days, 
We would spend half the time playing and half the time arguing if it was a fair or foul, if it was in or out, if it was really a touchdown, if it was technically a fumble. There was no instant replay, and we would sit there and bicker. You know what this is? Anarchy. This is raising little anarchists, and, and, and none of, no one had the authority. You know how the authority? That who was the loudest person or that who was the biggest person or someone who's like, you've heard this expression, I'm just going to take my ball and go home, right? So this is how it happens sometimes. Jesus doesn't want that for his church. Jesus is the head of his church. He doesn't want that, so he appoints leaders. He appoints basically a ref that says, no, this was in, this was out. Do refs sometimes get it wrong? They do. But they are the ones that are submitted to it, saying, okay, so that we can move forward on mission, so that we can get there, we need a leader. There was an example of this in Mexico, our last night there, where uh, George, um, one of the missionaries down there, he's watching us just kind of, you know, kind of go back and forth on some different ideas. And and he said, he goes, yeah, this is why God appointed leaders and didn't have it just be democracy. And I just kind of laughed. I'm like, yeah, you you got it, brother. And he's kind of an outsider looking in on this. Churches can sometimes get paralyzed because they can't decide on on the color of the carpet because everyone's got an equal voice. And it turns into little kids playing wiffle ball. Finally, uh, there are gifts. I pointed out gifts and and offices. Um, God gifts people for the body. And uh, one of the beautiful things is that all these different people fit together uh, and and join together. One of the things I want you to, to notice, I don't know if you noticed it on the way in, um, but this is our new sign. And now let me just let me just say this is this is a good thing. Um, it has been a long time coming to get this up, and I bring this up because of this. I don't want to glory in the fact. Whoopee, we have a sign. This is not for us. We know where we are, right? We know how to find us if this building burns down, right? This is, this is solely for, and many in this room sacrificially gave to say, this is for people driving by that would look at that sign and say, a church meets here. Something's going on here. I can't help but get a giant smile when I look at our sign. I mean, how silly is that? It's kind of weird, and I, I recognize that. But I see it, and I go, Lord, you can take plaster and silly stuff and actually use it for, for, for kingdom purpose, that someone's life might be eternally changed because now they somehow notice there's a church here and maybe there's something really going on here and they're going to find the place and not drive right by, which is kind of easy to do with our church. Praise God for the sign. You know what else this sign says to me? And it was, it was a beautiful thing. Um, there are a vast number of people who feel ownership in this family and have sacrificed long hours in the hot sun. Yesterday, I drove by just to encourage what I thought was one brother out here working his tail off to put some finishing touches on, and it was him and his family out here. And I got a call from him. I called him later on that night after I had tended to some things, and late in the night, he was just leaving. We have a body here that's gifted and that works in different ways, and praise God that they're all, that they're all working together. And so when you drive by and you see our sign, you just pray. Say, God, use that sign as a beacon, as a lighthouse for other people. It's not for us. You know what we know? We know that tagging goes on in the city of San Jose. It goes on on our banners and all that stuff. And you know what? That sign might get thrashed. Ultimately, it's just stuff, right? 
But isn't it cool that that got put up there? Kel, why don't you come on up? Uh, one of the other things about an elder board and why God appoints a plurality of leaders is this. There are different um, gifts and strengths even within our elder board. And one of the things we want to do for you here uh, with fall, I promised this last week, those of you who were attentive know that this is coming, but we just wanted to give you a short financial update. We gave you one of those um, in spring and just wanted to keep that in front of you. And so, um, Kel. So I think last time uh, that I gave a little update, uh, I, I referred to a story in 1 Kings 17, if you want to open up to it. And what was going on there is there was a prophecy of a famine. And then we zoom into this family. It's, it's a woman and child. And I was making parallels between that story. Because this woman and child, you can just feel in the story that there was a fading away going on, a deterioration going on. Um, it wasn't kind of off a cliff or anything like that. It was just very slow um, uh, fade. Um, and uh, so Elijah comes up to this family and uh, this woman and says, oh, make me some bread. And she's like, well, I've only got enough for me and my son and we're going to die. And you know, we're, just kind of, we're just kind of taking our slow path down. Well, um, I'm here to tell you that our fading in giving, and that was my parallel that I was making, our fading in giving turned completely around, uh, just like happened to this woman or her family. And many times, uh, summertime is the wilderness of giving. <laughs> and Dave said the other day, he's like, I've never seen a finance guy in church be excited in August. Uh, but <laughs> so, and I also, um, I also said last time that how we come through this is really going to tell us the trajectory that we're on for planning in, um, you know, in upcoming seasons and stuff. So, should this continue, should, should um, the strength and giving continue, uh, we have many more conversations about uh, what we can do expanding uh, what God's doing here in the community, expanding ministries, uh, things like that, as opposed to concern for uh, faith uh, and things like that. So, um, so that's the update. I would like to pray. And, um, and I also am going, as a... As a symbol of uh, humility in this. I'm going to get on my knees to pray. If you want to join me that way, feel free. It's kind of awkward with the chairs sometimes. Um, But before I do, I also want to key off of what Ben said about the pray 24-7 thing. If you yearn for uh, prayer, uh, corporate prayer, uh, there's a group of us that get together every Sunday at 9.30, and and we pray. We're just right over one of those little rooms over there. And um, I think God... I know God hears our prayers um, and things. So that's just one way, if that's an avenue that uh, that's appealing to you and, and you want to join in on that. Um, so, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we know you love us. Uh, we know this based on your revelation to us, but mostly by what you've done for us and the sacrifice you've made for us. Uh, we thank you for seeing us through a season of concern, and, and I apologize for my own anxiety uh, over this, as we're to be anxious for nothing, um, and that it was a sign of maybe lack of faith on my part, and so I personally apologize for that. Uh, we know you're greater than this uh, than our finances, you're greater than this church, you're greater than this community, you're greater than this world, and you've overcome it already. Uh, and help us to have faith that you will continue to, <clears throat> to pour out abundance uh, to those who believe 
and who are going about uh, doing your work. And we know that uh, you don't give abundance for our works, uh, but because you've chosen us and, and that you've saved us. And that is the greatest abundance that we can have, is the abundance of, of your sacrifice and our salvation. I also ask that you would help us turn toward our, our attention as a body toward uh, serving and that we go about your work and what you tell us to do and baptize and teach and that you make those our priorities, not anything about this building or about the, what we have here uh, in front of us, but about uh, telling others about what you've done, not only through us, through our lives, but what's available to them. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leadership in and gifts for the church points to church membership and points to clarifying that and defining that. There are many, many other evidences in the New Testament. There's tracking growth in Acts 2. There's an awareness of who is a member in Romans 16. There's even organization and a plan for widow assistance program in 1 Timothy 5. So as you read these texts, you just keep reading and say, well, there's definition there. Lord, help us to figure out how to move forward in this. My, my wrap-up, so to speak, is this, my conclusion that I uh, hope, hope you will come to as well uh, as, as we see it in Scripture is this, that commitment to a local church is a matter of biblical obedience and not personal preference. Now, again, because the Bible hasn't spelled it out, there is freedom in how, in, in how that is. So we're walking humbly in this, and we're saying, Lord, you show us how you want this to look in our time, in our day, and in our place. Let me very briefly go over kind of a process and timeline. Uh, the process is this. We are really trusting and praying that this would be a meaningful time and that it would be relational. Uh, this would be silly to just have this be something about a card, right, or just filling out or a raise of hands. How many want to be a member? Uh, this is not what this is about. Uh, that would blow this apart. In fact, part of what we're doing is leading with teaching, leading with elevating God's word, leading you to say, uh, study into this and, and, and read into this. Relational in that we're a relatively small church and uh, and we want to do this in such a way that this um, this enhances the body and enhances relationships here um, and, and all of that. Uh, meaningful uh, timeline, by the way, is just uh, starting this fall. Fall is kind of a good starting time. Uh, the book of Ephesians actually has been a precursor. We knew about membership and kind of where we wanted to go as we headed into Ephesians. I told you last week it was a 32-week intro for this, uh, for this two-week series. Um, let me just say this. Meaningful membership benefits NBC. NBC, uh, this church, is made up of individual men and women. That's every local church. Collectively, we're the church, but it's made up of individual uh, men and women who are called according to God's purposes. It benefits us as a church by calling attenders to a higher level of commitment, re- removing the ambiguity of whether I'm in or I'm, I'm out. It also increases accountability. Is that uncomfortable sometimes? Absolutely it is. Am I going to be in, uh, you know, in your face on a Tuesday night saying, "Give me your checkbook, give me, give me your, uh, give me your Quicken account"? I want to, I want to get in there. I want to see. That's not what we're talking about. And if you have some bizarre picture of that in your mind, uh, come and talk to me. Let me put some of your fears to rest. But will it raise accountability? It will. It'll raise accountability between members. It'll raise accountability between leadership and members. Uh, and it will clarify for both the people and the leaders who are the ones who are here. Who are the ones uh, that are to be cared for, loved, and built up as the church? I told our men's group about a story that we often 
we, we many times get people that walk in and need assistance, want assistance. If I did that for every person who walked into our church, the money that is given here could funnel completely out that door. And that would be our only ministry. We would eventually, I'd come to you and say, sorry, we're shutting the lights off because we're a loving church and we're going to just give to everyone. What I have to weigh as a pastor on the moment most often is in prayer, in my heart, I'm doing what we just did. I'm kneeling in prayer saying, God, you give me wisdom right now. My first question to the person walking in and saying need is this. I say, where do you attend church? They tell me it's across town. I say, praise God for that. You go to your church. And if they know you there, if you're a member there, they will care for you first with their resources. That's part of what they're called to do. If they say, I don't have a church home, which is many people, then I ask them where their family is. I start with their church because God's eternal family is more important than your physical family, believe it or not. Where's your physical family? And they say, well, they're across town. I say, you go to your family. It's time to repent. It's time to come back together. You, you need to be supported by them. If they have neither one of those in check and in place, I'm then faced with a decision. I am called as, as, a, as a pastor, as a leader of this church, to care and pour resources into those who are in the church. Is it to those who are outside the church as well? Absolutely. And you guys hear of stories of benevolence and those kinds of things. But there is a priority in my time. There is a priority in my prayer. There is a priority in our resources as a pastor to those who are walking in fellowship with us. I can care for someone much better if I'm here. I tell whoever walks through the door, I say, we specialize in one thing, offering the gospel that will transform your life and then walking through your entire life with you. Loving on your kids in a way that's sacrificial. Don't you dare settle for a hundred bucks to help you with rent. That's not what we specialize in anyways. We can't do that for everyone. You know what You know 90% of the people do? You, you've already guessed it. They want the hundred bucks, right? They're like, keep your gospel and keep your lifetime of sacrificially loving me and my family. And, and, and that saddens me. It really does. There's a handful, I hope, year after year, that are sitting in here that are tearing up right now and going, man, that was my story and here I am. Being loved on being a part of now loving others who are walking in, the walking wounded, coming into a church. It benefits NBC. It also benefits our neighborhood. It gives context and breadth. When you invite someone to your church, it's not about a sign, a building, or a service. It gives breadth to it to say, here's, here's what the family of God is like. I'm inviting you into that. It also benefits our neighborhood by joining together in ways that allow for greater reach than doing it by yourself. Teaching is true with this. Mexico outreaches are true of this. Youth group events are true of this. John Muir's Christian Club is, is jointly pursued by three churches that love Jesus and put aside certain other differences for the sake of the gospel. And we're able to have a better impact next door at John Muir than we are alone as a church. That's a great thing. Another thing coming up is the neighborhood work about. I'm looking at Naomi and Rich Henderson. Um, we're banding together as a church to be a blessing to our neighborhood to work and show the love of Jesus to them as a larger body than just individually. It also benefits the gospel because uh, the good news saves people not only from a life of sin, but into new life and into new community. And so the gospel is elevated when we have meaningful membership going on. Loving commitment is seen in its members and it displays and honors the head when there's meaningful membership going on. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me invite the band up and just say this in conclusion. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Just listen. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, uh, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where all of us were at one point. We were out. But now, remember the but nows in our Ephesians series? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hear me say this because this might be the most important thing I say all morning. The gospel is quite simply, Jesus was captured so that sinners could go free. Jesus is the one who provides all the sacrifice such that everyone who comes and is found in his name, we're all on equal footing. We all are equally insufficient, insufficient to the task of saving ourselves from the wrath to come of sin. We're equally in need day by day as we march forward as a Christian of His grace and mercy in our life, of His ongoing forgiveness, of His empowering Holy Spirit. Because of that gospel, I want you to hear this. that The point of membership is not to be exclusive or to be turning people away. Rather, the point of membership is that the church is supposed to reflect God's character to the world. And when a church's members are genuine, growing Christians, God's glory is put on display and the gospel is commended to the world. Three do's as you go. One, study the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. And thirdly, obey. You go study on your own. Invite the Holy Spirit to teach you, to instruct you on this. And thirdly, obey what's going on. Let me pray and we're going to sing some closing songs. Father, I praise you for this group of people. I praise you, Father, for how I have been shaped by the community of faith over the years. I ask, God, that you would give us one heart and one mind as we march forward in this. Thank you for giving us um, confidence, Lord. Thank you for giving us instruction. Help us to hold tightly and firmly where you have clearly painted lines. And, Lord, help us to humbly walk and uh, and and with 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 confidence, though, that you've given us your mind and your will in areas that you've left freedom for. We praise you, Lord, that you uh, long for us to grow closer to you. And one of the ways you do that is providing your body this this visible, tangible uh, place, God, and and people that we can see the invisible body of Christ at work. We love you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.